Today's scripture reading comes from the books of Philemon chapter 1, Colossians chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, my name is Aaron, and I get the privilege of serving as one of the pastors at Exilic. And we are actually wrapping up a collection of talks that we've been doing for the past few months today uh, that we've entitled From Embers to a Flame. And the reason why we've entitled uh, our, our series From Embers to a Flame is because oftentimes it can feel like our faith uh, and our relationship with God has cooled down to an ember. Uh, and so the question is, how do we fan that ember back into a flame? Uh, but the truth of the matter is, sometimes it can feel like our faith has not only cooled down to an ember, uh, but sometimes it can feel like our faith has cooled down to a lump of cold charcoal. Uh, there's not even a spark or fire that's there. And, um, and oftentimes when that happens, we can feel sort of helpless because we're not sure uh, what to do. And this was the case with Demas. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of the name Demas in the Bible before, uh, let alone an entire sermon uh, about Demas. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, uh, all of us know uh, Demas is in our life who have walked away from the faith. And chances are, uh, it's possible that you might even be sitting here thinking, not only do I know fellow Demases, but I think that I might be Demas myself. And if that's how you feel, I want you to know that we're so glad that you're able to uh, join us uh, at our church for worship today. Uh, and it's important to talk about this uh, and, and Demas uh, for a lot of reasons, but let me just give you one. Uh, according to one of our greatest cultural authorities, Instagram, uh, as of today, there are close to, if not more than, 300,000 hashtags with the hashtag deconstruction. And most if not all of the people that use this hashtag deconstruction are people that grew up in the church but subsequently grew out of their faith. They didn't grow up in the church and up in their faith. They grew up in the church and subsequently they grew out of their faith. Okay, So this is, this is a movement that is taking place uh, in the Christian landscape today. But one of the reasons why we don't have to panic, uh, even though it feels like a very new movement that is taking place, is that it's actually not new. It might feel more new and more in vogue uh, because it's more visible via deconstruct, deconstruction podcasts. There are courses on how to deconstruct your faith. There's even therapy for those that are deconstructing their faith. And there's large digital communities for those that are deconstructing their faith. And so it feels new because it's a lot more visible, but deconstruction has been taking place 
all the way back to even biblical times. And so there are three things that I want us to uh, consider today. Number one, what is deconstruction? Uh, number two, why do people deconstruct their faith? Why did Demas deconstruct his faith? And then number three, whatever happens to Demas? All right, so number one, what is deconstruction? Um, for those of you who are philosophy bus, you might be familiar with the name Jacques Derrida, who's considered the father of deconstruction, uh, who borrowed a lot of his work from another philosopher named Martin Heidegger. Now, I'm not going to go into, generally speaking, what deconstruction is from a philosophical standpoint, generally. I want to talk about deconstruction more specifically uh, within the Christian landscape. Okay? So, Elisa Childers, in her book, Another Gospel, she writes this. Deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. Sometimes the Christian will deconstruct all the way to atheism. Some remain there, but others experience a reconstruction, uh, reconstruction. But the type of faith that they end up embracing almost never resembles the Christianity they formerly knew. So it's important to know that when people are deconstructing their faith, it doesn't necessarily lead to a destruction of their faith. Sometimes when you're deconstructing your faith, it can lead to a reconstruction of your faith as well. So I'll give you an example. Uh, when someone is renovating their uh, closed kitchen, so it can become an open concept kitchen, what do you have to do? You have to deconstruct the walls. You have to tear down the walls. But just because you're tearing down the walls, it doesn't mean that you have to tear down the whole house, including its foundations. You can tear down certain aspects of the house without destroying the entire thing. And I would say similarly, uh, deconstruction, when you're doing it, you can tear down certain aspects, particularly of the cultural Christianity that you grew up with, without necessarily destroying and annihilating the whole thing in order to reconstruct your faith uh, in a more positive way. Okay, so that's what deconstruction is, where we're dissecting systematically tearing down certain aspects of our faith. Sometimes it can lead to destruction, but other times it can lead to a reconstruction. Now, why, number two, why do people deconstruct their faith? Well, I wanna read the three verses for us, uh, again, that Sandy read for us. And in Philemon, it says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Colossians 4.14, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas, again, send greetings. Both Philemon and Colossians were written around the same period, 62-63 AD, okay? 62-63 AD. Now, about three or four years later, the Apostle Paul writes his last letter, 2 Timothy, that we just read. And in just a matter of three or four years, this is what Paul says about Demas. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. In just three or four years, Demas goes from disciple to deserter, from fellow worker to forsaker. And so the question is, what happened to Demas during these three or four years? And typically, there are three reasons why people deconstruct their faith. It's usually regarding the head, or the heart, or the hands. Okay, so I'll give you an example of this. With the head, 
head reasons for why people deconstruct their faith. Kathleen Norris, in her book, Amazing Grace, she writes this. Despite having loved the church as a child, I found it remarkably easy to walk away when I went to college. A dose of enlightenment, a bit of Bertrand Russell, a dollop of Marx, and a dash of Camus, and away with God. And for the next 20 years of Kathleen Norris's life, she walked away from the faith before eventually coming back. Why did she leave? Because she didn't feel like the church equipped her to handle the intellectual questions that she was facing in college. I'll give you another example. Ricky Gervais uh, might be a familiar name to you, comedian, actor, the original founder of the original office in the UK. Uh, Gervais grew up in a Christian home, Christian mom who loved Jesus. And one day, Ricky, little Ricky at the age of eight was reading the Bible. And his older brother, Bob, who was 11 years older, 19 years old, comes into the room and goes, Ricky, what are you doing? Like, you don't believe in God, do you? And as soon as Bob said that, you hear Ricky's mom go, Bob! And as soon as she yelled, Bob, Ricky knew, eight-year-old Ricky knew that his mom was hiding something and his older brother was telling the truth. And at the age of eight, little Ricky Gervais deconstructed his faith and abandoned it altogether. And oftentimes, like Kathleen Norris's experience and Ricky Gervais's experience, the home, the family, and sometimes even the church can oftentimes feel like a space where it's actually not safe to process your questions or to ask difficult ones or to, or to come across uh, even a little bit challenging because of the, the doubts that you might have. And so as a result, the questions are sort of just like squashed. And so it's just believe. Don't question. Just believe it. And when that happens, and then you go to college or you, know, you have different experiences, uh, that's when a process of deconstruction can take place. And so I don't know if that has been your experience, but I want you to know that our, our church, I want our church to be the kind of space where it's okay to ask those questions. Why? Because doubt is not the opposite of belief. You know what the opposite of belief is? Unbelief. Doubts are somewhere in the middle of belief and unbelief. And if you find questions or answers for your doubts, it, it can actually propel you to have stronger faith, not actually weaker faith. And so wherever you might be, I want you to know that as a church, we want to go on this um, truth quest with you. And the reason why I use the word quest is because the word quest is actually embedded in the word question. And so we want to go on this quest with you where you might have questions about various things. All right. So sometimes people abandon their faith for head reasons. Sometimes people abandon their faith for hand reasons. And here I'm specifically referring to sexual abuse or spiritual abuse that takes place under the church roof. And when something like that happens, it's hard not to associate that kind of abuse with your faith. And so instead of, being the church, instead of church being the kind of space where it's safe to run to, now it's the kind of space that people run away from. And so when you face that kind of abuse, it's, it's, it's understandable why people walk away from their faith. Because the church is not only not a safe space to ask questions, but it's not a safe space to even have relationships or community. 
So that's another reason why people deconstruct their faith. But there's a third reason why people deconstruct their faith. And it's not head reasons or hand reasons, but it's also heart reasons. And so take a look with me again at 2 Timothy 4.10. And it says, For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. I like the New Living Translation, which puts a little twist on this, and it says this, Demas has deserted me because he loves, I don't know if we have the New Living Translation. Yeah, there we go. Demas has deserted me because he loved, uh, he loves the things of this life. And so I don't know if you've ever heard the expression, the heart wants what the heart wants. We've all heard the expression, the heart wants what the heart wants. And so when we say things like that, the truth of the matter is, if we're gonna have intellectual integrity, most people abandon their faith, not for head reasons, but for heart reasons, because the heart wants what the heart wants. So it's usually not people's heads that lead them out of the faith, it's actually people's hearts that lead them out of the faith. And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, many of you might know the name Augustine, North African bishop, one of the smartest, wisest people in human history. <laughs> He wrote the first autobiography in human history, The Confessions, which is still read in the academy today. And if you're unfamiliar with Augustine and The Confessions, he grew up much like Ricky Gervais, Christian home, mom that loved Jesus. But later on in his teenage years and in his early 20s, he deconstructed his faith and walked away from his faith altogether. And when you read The Confessions, Augustine says things like this. Thus, in the tradition of the uh, academics, I held all the possibilities in doubt, including Christianity, and bobbled around among them all. And so Augustine uh, you know, prided himself on being like this truth seeker, on this intellectual truth quest. Um, but the more you read the confessions, the more you realize that it wasn't his head that led him out of the faith, it was actually his heart. Uh, what, what, what the greatest inhibitor for him wasn't like the intellectual questions. It was for him, it was his freedom, particularly sexual reasons. And because he felt like Christianity was such a straitjacket that inhibited his sexual freedom, much like Aldous Huxley, Foucault, they, they wanted nothing to do with Christianity uh, whatsoever. Once the heart wants what the heart wants, it's only thereafter that our heads follow the heart and justify the reasons for the type of life or behavior that we want. First comes the heart, and then it comes the head with the justifications. And you might see actually that pattern with some of your friends that are deconstructing their faith. There might be a veil of intellectual questions, but behind that veil is a particular life that they want to live because the heart wants what the heart wants. But sometimes, Sometimes, when people go to the other side, what they often discover is that the grass is not necessarily greener, but oftentimes yellowish brown. And this is why we oftentimes tell these kinds of stories, like you're about to hear from Matthew Perry, that I quoted last week, the famous Chandler Bing in Friends, and in his new autobiography, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, Perry says this, it was everything I thought I wanted. I was gonna fill all the holes with friends. The attention that I always felt had eluded me was about to fill every corner of my life like a room illuminated by a flash of lightning. 
People were going to like me now. I was going to be enough. Whatever holes you're filling seem to keep opening back up, though. Maybe it's because I was always trying to fill a spiritual hole with a material thing. Sometimes we have to see what's on the other side to know that it's not our savior or a better answer for us. Now it's possible that you might be sitting here thinking, okay, I understand what you're saying. Uh, fame, money, like all that stuff is not necessarily better, but I've tried Christianity. I've grown up in the church. Like I know what this whole thing is about and I'm still not happy. I'm not, I don't find it fulfilling. I don't find the Christian faith satisfying. And if that's how you feel, I understand that. Demas understands that. You know, for Demas, keep in mind that in the first century world, there was a cost for following Jesus. This is why Paul is writing from prison about to be executed and beheaded. And for Demas, it's like, this is not gonna make me happy if I end up like Paul. This is not gonna fulfill me. <laughs> I'm not gonna find satisfaction being in the Mamertine prison about to be you know, beheaded by Emperor Nero. And, and so he deserted Paul and he deserted the faith because he didn't find it fulfilling or satisfying. And I can understand why you might feel that way. And for Demas, there was a great physical cost. And for us, you know what? There's a social cost for us following Jesus. And it's, it might not make you happy or fulfilled. And so the question is, why do people like Paul then who's in rags, about to be beheaded. Why does he find it so fulfilling and satisfying that he's willing to die for this thing? Like what makes, what makes him have joy even in the midst of chains? Like why the difference between Demas and the Apostle Paul? Okay, and I hope, I hope this is helpful, but if there's one thing that I think we can all agree on is that good food makes us all happy, right? Good food makes us all satisfied. Good food makes us all fulfilled. You wouldn't be here in New York City if you weren't a little bit of a foodie. So I wanna paint three experiences uh, for you with food, okay? And how it can satisfy us. Number one, uh, have you ever had a bad experience at a restaurant, bad customer service before? Per like waiters, waitresses are just rude. Have you ever had bad food at a restaurant before? In fact, so bad that you got food poisoning from it. And you not only experienced this once, bad customer service and bad food, but you've experienced this multiple times. Bad experiences, bad food. Now, what is the logical thing to do? Never go out to eat again? Never eat food again? Is that the logical thing to do? Of course not. You're still going to go out, and you're still going to eat food, but you want to find better food, and you want to find better customer service. And I would say similarly, I don't know the kind of church history that you might have, but you may have had bad customer service. You may have gotten bad food, but don't let that bad or negative experience stop you from finding better customer service and better food. Don't let, don't let that tainted experience encapsulate the wholeness of what Christianity is about, particularly the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. That's the first scenario. Let me paint a second scenario for you with food. Have your parents ever forced you to eat something that you didn't want to eat? Broccoli, you know, Brussels sprouts. For me, it was anchovies. 
My mom forced me to eat anchovies growing up. My, my, my youngest daughter, though, we're forcing her to eat uh, tomatoes. Uh, two years ago, she hated tomatoes. But you know what, now, she loves tomatoes. What happened? She's changed. She wasn't ready for tomatoes back then. I wasn't ready for anchovies when I was like four. But I've changed, my palate has changed. I'll give you another example of this. I know that the Enneagram is very in vogue today as well. My mom uh, made me do, forced me, uh, was, was shoving the Enneagram down my throat 30 years ago. Uh, she's actually a, an Enneagram coach even, so she's like way ahead of the curve. But because she shoved it down my throat, to this day, I have not taken the Enneagram. I want nothing to do with it, right? Because she forced me to do it, right? But now that I'm older, um, I do see the value in things like the Myers-Briggs and Enneagram and whatnot, right? But what, what's happened? I wasn't ready for it when I was 12. <laughs> but what's happened? I've changed. My palate has changed. And similarly, there's a possibility that you may not have been at the place in life where you were ready to handle certain things, but now you are ready to handle certain things. You might be at a different point where you can now receive it and accept it instead of reject it. Let me paint you a third scenario with food. Have you ever gone to a restaurant where there's like 100 things on the menu? You might think that that's more empowering for you to make a decision, right? It's the exact opposite. Uh, paralysis of analysis, like crazy. So it's actually harder to make a decision. It's actually easier to make a decision when there are only five options versus 100 options. Now think about the world that we live in today. When you step outside these doors, there's a hundred options for you on how to live. Hundred different religions, hundred things that you can do like watch the World Cup or watch Netflix or go climbing or go, or go, go to the, there's endless options for you that you can do. And Jesus is just one of those many, many options that you can think about or do with your life. But because of the endless options that are there, it's very difficult to choose one thing. And so oftentimes, we will never know, we will never know that Jesus is all that we need until he is all that we have. But when you have a lot of things, you will never know that he is all that you need sometimes. And so this is where in Christianity we have a robust understanding of suffering because suffering can sometimes take those options away from us. And when it strips all of those things away, we begin to see that actually Jesus really is all that we need. The point of an open mouth, uh, an open mind is like an open mouth. The point of an open mind is not to keep your mind open about everything forever and ever. But the point of an open mind is like an open mouth. Eventually, you have to close it on solid food. And similarly with your mind, eventually you have to close it in on some absolute truth that you believe in. And when you begin to do that, you will see and you will experience that Jesus is actually all that we really, really need for the meaning and satisfaction fulfillment that we're all looking for. So, what happens to Demas? Well, we don't know. We don't know what happens to Demas, and maybe that's a good thing. 
because we don't know how his story ends. And similarly, I would say to you, we don't know how your story will end and we don't know how your loved one's story will end. And maybe that's not a bad thing, but that's actually a good thing. I was talking with uh, some of my friends that are in ministry and we were you know, just sitting in a circle sharing. Uh, and for some of my older friends that have kids that are in high school, college and out of college, uh, it was interesting that uh, the biggest pain point in their life right now is not ministry, uh, it's their kids who have walked away from their faith. Kids that grew up doing VBS, catechized, Sunday school, came to church every Sunday, did a Christmas performance that you're about to see next week. They, they, they exhibited grace in their home. Their parent, the, the, they, they, they even apologized to their kids when they messed up. Grace-filled home. But by the time they got into high school or college or out, the biggest pain point, and not just for one of my friends, multiple friends of mine who are better dads than me, better pastors than me, better men than me, seeing their kids walk away from their faith. And I remember you know, just listening as a, um, a father with, with two young kids. And I just remember the fear of God was in my heart. I was like terrified for, for my two girls. Uh, because without fail, every single one of them said, I would give up my ministry in a heartbeat, large ministries, if my son or daughter would just know who Jesus is. And there's a sense of guilt, like how can I minister to other people well when I can't even minister to my own kids? And I just remember just being so scared, you know, for my, for my girls. And as they were sharing, uh, one of my friends who was a PK, pastor's kid, um, he interjected and he said, um, hey guys, I know that this is scary, uh, but I want you to think about my life. I grew up a PK, grew up in the church, grew up an obedient kid, but for 10 years, I left the faith, and I left it hard, and I never looked back. But after 10 years of walking away from the faith, this prodigal son has come home. You don't know how your kid's story will end. And now he's actually doing ministry. And I remember when he said that, like our hearts were like so encouraged. Because you know what? God is the author and perfecter of our faith. Not you, not even them. God is the author and perfecter of our faith. And you don't know how this story will end. And you know what? We don't know how Demas' story uh, is going to end as well. The apostles, the disciples followed Jesus hard and then they deconstructed and deserted him. But then they eventually came back as well. We don't know how people's story will end. And maybe that's a good thing. But I don't want to make this just about Demas. This is, after all, the last thing that the Apostle Paul writes. And when someone writes their last words, they get very honest because they don't care what other people think at a certain point. And in 2 Timothy 4.9, Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. Paul knows that he is days, if not hours, away from his beheading under Emperor Nero. And if there is one thing that is scarier than dying, it is dying alone, without family or friends, 
which is why he tells Timothy to hurry up. And he goes on in chapter 115 to say, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. And in chapter 416, he says, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. But then he goes on to say, may it not be held against them. Everyone deserted him, not just Demas, Phygelus, Hermogenes, everyone abandoned him. But yet he has the audacity to say, may it not be held against them. Now, what story does that sound like? When someone is abandoned by all their friends, but they say, may it not be held against them. What this is ultimately, what he is reenacting is actually the cross. When Jesus is deserted by Peter, uh, uh, betrayed by Judas, all the disciples run away from him. But on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And on the cross, Jesus, when he dies for our sins, the reason why we are accepted by God is because on the cross, Jesus was the one that was ultimately deserted and forsaken by God the Father because he took on the world's sins in our place. And he was the one that was rejected by God that we might be accepted by him. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Demas loved the things of this world. But in John 3.16, it says, for God so loved the world, all the people of this world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And it's because of Jesus that no matter how much we deny him or forsake him or desert him, and we all do, we are ultimately accepted because of what Jesus has done for us. So let me just close with three things. One of my favorite verses is from an obscure letter called Jude, only one chapter. And in Jude 22, it says this, be merciful to those who doubt. When you read the Confessions, Augustine eventually comes back home. And the reason for that wasn't because he read all these books. The reason for that is because of a dude named Ambrose. And when you read the Confessions, uh, Augustine says that Ambrose loved him like he was his only son. It was the kindness, the love, and the mercy of Ambrose that brought Augustine home. And similarly, I would say for those of you who have friends and loved ones that are deconstructing their faith, it's not your haymaker arguments that are gonna win them ultimately over, but it is your kindness, love, and mercy for them. The second thing that I would say is a quote from Ryan Burge, who's a researcher. And he says that church attendance is the first thing that goes, then belonging, like to a community, and finally, belief in that order. Belief goes last, right? So again, it's not our head that leads us out of Christianity, it's our hearts. And so I don't know where you're at, but the one thing that I wanna encourage you with, uh, if you're considering, or if you're in the process of deconstructing, just keep coming out. Just keep coming out every Sunday, because church attendance is the first thing to go. Don't ghost on us. Just keep coming out. Make this a regular rhythm and, and pattern of your weekly life. 
and see what God can do as you show up week after week after week. Feelings of love can lead to actions of love, but actions of love can also lead to feelings of love. So act and come week after week. And the last thing that I just want to close with is a verse from 1 John, where John writes, this is how we know, because you might be thinking, how do I know? How do I know? This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest instead of restlessness in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So if your hearts condemn you, like I'm such an imposter, I don't belong here. Do you know what I've done? How can I identify myself as a Christian? If your hearts condemn you, God is greater than your heart. You know, when we get to heaven, uh, there will be two things that happen. Number one, we'll be surprised that some people are not there. But number two, we'll be surprised that some people are there. Like, dude, <laughs> I, I had no idea. <laughs> you, you believed. You had faith. God is greater uh, than our hearts. And no one's story is ever over into the end. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, not us. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, I, I want to specifically pray for those that are sort of in this uh, deconstruction process, uh, that your spirit would guide them and that you would be their true north. Uh, help us to be a community, to be the kind of space where people can freely ask their questions and also freely and safely dive into relationships uh, as they process these things. My hope is that the internet is not the first space that we go to for safety and answers, but it is right here uh, in the context of the church and your word and relationships. And uh, it is my also prayer that uh, we would be as kind, loving, humble and merciful to those that we know that are Demises. But at the end of the day, we know that you're the author and perfecter of our faith, not us. And for that, we thank you. In your name I pray. Amen.